The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Is Fiat Chrysler driving towards a breakup? Under fire, Uber may have a plan to turn around sputtering morale and all you need to know about China's unicorns. These are the issues we'll be tackling later in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and here with me is my co-host, Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hey, Anthony. Shares in Fiat Chrysler have sped ahead some 23% in the past week. That's all thanks to reports that a Chinese company may want to buy some or all of the Italian carmaker. Great Wall Motors has since emerged as the interested party and has its sights set on the iconic Jeep brand. So here to tell us what's going to happen next is Anthony Curry. So Anthony, what happens next? Oh, well, lots of things. Um, first of all, when you put, put this in context, this is precisely, or at least in general, this is precisely what the car industry needs, consolidation of some form or other. The fact it's coming from China is, is intriguing in a couple of respects. But isn't it already consolidated? Fiat and Chrysler? Well, yes, but you also need more <laughs> consolidation. <laughs> so don't don't so forget, keep going. Don't forget, Sergio Marchioni, who um, is CEO of um, Fiat Chrysler and also CEO of Ferrari, which was spun off a year or two ago and which he's going to go to in a year and a half as his only job when he leaves Fiat Chrysler. Right, Sergio Marchioni famously a couple of years ago uh, put together a presentation called um, Confessions of a Capital Junkie where he went through the reasons why the car industry is um, wasting far too much money on duplicative capital uses like powertrains, getting the cars to work properly, all that kind of stuff, rather than spending money on what would differentiate you all as car companies. And said, look, there's one simple way through this. We merge. We must merge to be able to save uh, more money, and then maybe we will get the kind of multiples that we deserve from the marketplace. And if you look at uh, all the companies, I think I think I'm right in saying that only Toyota at the moment trades at um, above a ten times forward earnings multiple, and that's crucial because the way we look at it is ten a ten times earnings multiple is basically uh, investors telling you they don't think you're going to grow and they don't think you're going to shrink. Every other car maker is trading below that. Now I don't think that means that, car, that investors think car makers will shrink. I think they're looking at various problems. You've got um, you've got too much capacity. You've got too many car makers out there, so you need consolidation, but you don't see it happening. Uh, you've got the rise of autonomous and electric vehicles, and no one knows who's going to win that game yet. And you've got a slowdown in the U.S., which is the most profitable market at the so, moment. So, his thesis seems reasonable, and and Fiat Chrysler reasonable, has but no, but everyone knows it's not going to happen. At least, you know, GM, which he wanted to merge with, keeps saying no. Okay, right? so, but 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 one aspect that they have been kind of making some uh, inroads with, haha. Is you're on fire. You <laughs> I really am on fire today. Um, basically, is that they that they are they, they partnered with BMW and others to look at uh, technology that you know Fiat Chrysler did. Yeah, right. See, th- this is an interesting thing because because of its position, Fiat Chrysler. Don't forget, well, Chrysler at least was in trouble uh, during the crisis. Had to be bailed out by the government through a bankruptcy. Fiat comes in and gets given stakes for taking it over and buys some stakes as well. Um, but you still had a heavily indebted company, and Fiat wasn't doing too well either after the crisis. So. They've been paying down debt, but Fiat Chrysler still has basically the worst margins of the group, pre-tax margins. Of the so group. they have very little to lose. So there's, ver- there's well, they have very little to invest, right, <laughs> okay, basically. Or, or that, if you, if yeah. you look, uh, Reuters has done this fantastic um, visual of who's doing what in the world of autonomous and electric cars. So you've got your BMWs and the Intels and the Waymos and the, and the Googles, well, that is Waymo and Apples and everyone, all linked to various participants in this wonderful globe that Reuters has done. Until last week, Fiat had one link, and that was to Waymo. 
And Waymo, basically, the Google um, self-driving car unit, was taking Fiat vans, um, minivans, and applying its self-driving technology. So basically, Fiat Chrysler was outsourcing everything in autonomous to... Um, to Waymo because it just couldn't afford to do it itself, which is actually Sergio Marchionne being forced to uh, do what he said, which is not waste capital. Last week's announcement with joining the, the BMW Mobileye Intel group is the first time they've done anything beyond that. And it's partly because they've got a bit more money, partly because they have to be seen to be doing something as well. Right. But yeah, it's in a bit of trouble. So if it can, if, if it can actually find a way to um, merge and cut costs and uh, have a, a much better... Um, uh, overall parent then great but great great wall of china uh sorry great wall motors of I china know, right it's a great it's a great name for <laughs> exactly company. that that's just not going to do it for a variety of reasons well yeah let, let's let's stop there so so now they're kind of at this this point where they're in a painful position so they're looking at selling off assets one of those is jeep which is as i said earlier and which you know and most of our audience knows is an iconic american brand yeah so i mean look, i don't think they want to get rid of jeep in fact marchioni said on the most recent earnings call Look, we've got to look at ways of improving um, uh, how we look to the market. You know, the market undervalues us. It maybe undervalues parts of what we own. And probably what's undervalued most is Jeep, which accounts for 75% of earning foreign interest taxes and depreciation. So it's undervalued, but is that the most valuable aspect of its com- of the company? Uh, yeah, probably. It sells about 2 million cars a year, 2 million Jeeps a year. Um, it's, you know... Fine. It's an iconic brand. It's the reason why um, Great Motors, is, uh, Great uh, Great Wall Motors, is interested because it basically sells SUVs, and Jeeps would sell like hotcakes. Yeah. There, what what sure. does Great Wall Motor is it? Is it's Chinese? basically an, it's ba- Chinese company that sells this, mostly SUVs but and trucks. Chinese branded SUVs. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know that that would maybe work for for um, Great Wall. It would also provide a great deal of money for um, Fiat Chrysler. Morgan Stanley reckons that Jeep is probably worth about $23 billion, which is just above what Fiat Chrysler in total is worth at the moment after the recent run-up in shares. And the reason why there's a differential is because Fiat Chrysler has a ton of debt, uh, Mm. and it has, um, although it's managing that well and getting it down, but it also has about $5 billion worth of unfunded pensions. Um, A lot of the other companies still have, like Ford and GM, have unfunded pensions, but they have net cash. Mm. So, yeah, that's why... You see Fiat Chrysler struggling, why it's uh, earning less money, why its margins are lower, because it's still dealing with all of these problems. So if it can do something to get out from under that, great. But if it sells Jeep, it loses the vast majority of its earnings and probably be in the red. And as Mark Yoni was saying a couple of weeks ago, the last thing he wants to do is, is to just create some kind of awful rump uh, Fiat Chrysler that's left. If you look through various numbers on others of them, Maserati probably can't stand alone. Uh, it's too small. Um, it's got some parts units it could sell off, which are probably worth four or five billion dollars. But, you know, the, the Chrysler brand, parts of the Fiat brand, the Dodge Trucks brand basically aren't worth anything. They're not making enough money. OK, so so take us back here a little bit. Um, did, the, did the Great Wall approach uh, Fiat Chrysler? They kind of have. What's it's a, it's a, it's a bit unclear whether, they've, whether they approached and were rebuffed uh, or whether they're still talking or whether they're trying to get talks. There's been various reports out there. But the president of Great Wall Motors wants to get in there and basically talk about Jeep. And the rumors we've been hearing more recently is that... Um, that um, Fiat Chrysler will maybe sell off uh, some of its part suppliers. Most other companies have got rid of them. Um, as I said, they could be worth four or five billion dollars, uh, and maybe even Maserati. But again, that is difficult to stand alone. It's just you know, Aston Martin managed it just, but it's got a it's got a parent as well. These are tricky things to do. Um, so like, I think from Fiat Chrysler's perspective, you kind of want lots of money to invest, but you need to invest the money relatively quickly to catch up with everyone else. 
So do you really want to get all that money on balance sheet and take a lot of punts on what's happening with the future of the industry without having the earnings to show you're getting there? Don't forget Ford, which earns money uh, and which has spent a ton of money on autonomous vehicles, but wasn't earning as much and doing as well in its share price as, it, as investors wanted, had to get rid of its CEO this year, the guy pushing this strategy, because results weren't coming through quick enough. It's a very tricky thing to do. And, and Marchioni is on his last lap here. He's got another year or so to go before he leaves. And as much as I think he'd like to do things to push the company forward, he also wouldn't like to drive it into a ditch. All right. Well, that seems like quite a jam. Thank you, Anthony. We're staying with the auto industry for our next segment. Uber has been in the wars of late, that's putting it lightly. Despite its dominant position in the taxi and limousine business, the company behind the ride-hailing app is chugging out losses, is embroiled in several lawsuits, including one between co-founder and former CEO Travis Kalanick and Benchmark Capital, a major shareholder, and the company is suffering from a high turnover of drivers. But executives may have hit on a solution that might just help boost morale. Gina Chon joins us from our Washington bureau to fill us in. Hey, Gina, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, guys. So uh, what's Uber got up its sleeve that's going to make everything uh, fluffy and rosy again for it? Well, we've uh, heard from sources that Uber has been talking to the Securities and Exchange Commission about whether it could provide equity to certain drivers, whether it could be uh, based on time worked or um, number of trips made, um, but some sort of um, award compensation plan that would give them equity in Uber. Now, these talks are in very early stages. There's a lot of technicalities uh, with the SEC, which which doesn't specifically allow um, non-employees who are independent contractors to get stock uh, in private companies, but there are ways to get exemptions, and that's all um, something that's being discussed. That, now, that you hit on a nub there, um, Gina. So, that's the point. Uber's drivers are not employees, or at least <laughs> we've had a couple of lawsuits on this already. Uber doesn't want to call them employees. The drivers are trying to say, look, we, we should be. We should be getting more benefits, uh, better compensation. Um, how does this play out? Is it, are they doing, uh, is, is Uber coming up with this idea to try and placate its drivers, or would it, in fact, play into drivers' um, push to say, look, we are, in fact, employees and should be treated as such? Yeah, well, it could do a little bit of both. I mean, they've definitely had a problem with driver turnover and retaining drivers, especially new ones. Uh, there's been some studies that after 30 days, a, a good amount of them uh, don't stay on as drivers. And that has definitely been problematic for them as uh, drivers also complain about pay and expenses. So an additional compensation in the form of stock would obviously help. At the same time, um, they have been in these lawsuits about whether drivers are employees or independent contractors, as Uber likes to categorize them. And the SEC has uh, different categories as well for people who aren't considered employees. For example, they do allow consultants and advisors to be awarded stock as compensation uh, for private companies. Um, but they also have a category of what's known as, quote, de facto employees, essentially workers who do the jobs of what a, a normal employee would do. So that could get into gray lines for Uber in terms of the various lawsuits that they're facing as well. Um, Gina, do you think that uh, there's any sort of coincidence, um, and I'm just going to throw this out there, uh, that, you know, they're kind of looking at this now when there have been reports that Uber's valuation is falling. Um, it was last 
fundraising uh, round. I think they said it was, you know, reports have said it was basically $70 billion. You know, there have been a rash of um, markdowns recently from T. Rowe Price and, and others. Um, do you think that that plays into their decision at all? I mean, the fact that their valuation is lower and maybe they can, you know, okay, hey, we'll do this now versus, you know, when it was well, much I, higher? Yeah, well, I think the talks with the SEC actually predate some of this. Um, mainly, or I shouldn't say mainly, but partly as a response to some of this uh, bad um, publicity they've been getting. But you're right. I mean, obviously, the evaluation issue of, of several um, mutual funds uh, putting um, putting them down, uh, falling by uh, as much as 15% in some cases um, could also be a factor. Yeah, we should also mention that they're still looking for a CEO. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and several other executive and several, positions. And several other executives. And possibly another board member or two. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, they've got all these investors out there who've, who've brought in at various levels. Um, and as Jim was saying, some of them have now been marking down their stakes and whatever levels they were at. Um, they can't be too happy. A, they've got to devalue what they've, what they've got. But B, if they get diluted by, I mean, employees probably won't get a huge amount. But it's just a yet another thing to throw at shareholders already pretty unhappy with the company. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Uber's also been burning through a lot of cash. They're investing a lot in overseas markets. They're um, also putting money into autonomous vehicles. Now, they do have a decent um, cash cushion. They last reported they have more than um, $7 billion on hand. So it's it's not like they're um, going to be bleeding in, in a way that um, could really bring them down. But it is obviously just another factor for investors consider. Okay, Gina. Well, thank you very much for that report. We look forward to hearing more about Uber down the road. Next up, we'll be hearing from our colleagues in Asia, Quentin Webb and Robin Mack, who will be discussing Chinese unicorns and how they are different from those big privately valued companies here in the United States. Hi, I'm Asia financial editor Quentin Webb. I'm here with my colleague Robin Mack, who covers Asian technology for us. Um, Robin wrote a big piece recently looking at the major unicorns or private technology startups in China and thinking about how they're a bit different from their counterparts in the United States. Um, Robin, what's going on? Who is raising money and who are they raising it from? Hi, Quinton. Yeah, so in recent months, there's been quite a lot of news in terms of these Chinese unicorns, so private tech startups valued at more than one billion. Um, so you have this, um, you know, a news aggregator, Total, for instance, is raising $2 billion after raising $1 billion just a few months ago. And then separately, you have, um, you know, this local services platform called Meituan Dianping, who's sort of a mixture of Yelp, Groupon, Grubhub, and TripAdvisor, um, who's in talks to raise, um, you know, quite a massive $5 billion dollars. Um, and of course, you have Didi Kwaidi, which is um, the country's top ride-hailing app, uh, which defeated Uber uh, last year. Um, they're sort of in talks as well to raise more than $5 billion, uh, Reuters reported earlier this year. So you have quite of a flurry of activity from these uh, startups that's just raising uh, these huge sums of money. 
And do we know who is funding them? Is it domestic? Yeah, so or? yeah, so you have um, quite a lot of big names, um, you know, in the investors. So of course you have China's top uh, three internet companies, which are Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. So they're very involved in in funding the country's own private uh, tech startups. Um, and then of course you have you know funds like uh, Japan's uh, SoftBank, you know, which is also um, investing a $93 billion tech fund, um, you know, with outside partners. Um, and in the article you wrote, you make the argument that actually these big unicorns in China are a bit different from their counterparts in America. What makes them different, do you think? Yeah, so in just comparing, you know, the top 10 most valuable startups in China um, with the ones in the U.S., um, what I found was that in the U.S. you do have you know, a few startups that do cater to businesses. So you have, um, you know, Palantir, which is a data software company. You have WeWork, which is an office sharing company. And then you have Infor, which does um, software for enterprises. But in China, the, the list is dominated by, you know, consumer-facing uh, companies. So you have a lot of fintech, you have taxi apps, you have a smartphone maker, um, you have a drone maker, you have music streaming. Um, as well as, you know, other consumer um, apps. And a lot of this is about um, the extent to which the Chinese consumer uses their mobile phone, right? There's a kind of very symbiotic relationship between the Chinese consumer and their smartphone. Yeah, yeah so I think, you know, Chinese consumers, they're far more comfortable um, with things, uh, with using their smartphones to pay for things, um, to, you know, order taxis and buy, invest in wealth management products. Uh, whereas in the U.S., you know, you do have a lot of that legacy uh, technology where you still have quite a lot of uh, people that prefer to use PCs, for example. Um, and also Chinese consumers, they like to, you know, they like to spend quite a lot. So China is already the number one e-commerce market in the world. Um, and you have, you know, Chinese shoppers spending an average of something like $1,300 a year online, uh, which is quite a lot. Um, you know, and that's for a country where you know, half of the population has yet to go online. So even if they don't spend any more and more people start shopping, then it's a huge market for a lot of these startups. And in fact, I mean, you sort of make the argument that that level of spending is almost equivalent to a US level of online spending, even though it's a much poorer country in a kind of per capita basis. Yeah, so, I mean, it looks like US Amazon Prime, for instance. I mean, the average uh, Prime member spends roughly the same. So. You know, China has in some ways caught up, particularly in the more affluent cities in Shanghai and Beijing. Is it risky at all that this, this sort of overarching focus on the Chinese consumer, if you're a venture capitalist investing in some of these um, enterprises, would you be a, a bit worried about this exclusive focus? Yeah, so the risks are, are, are quite huge um, and it's quite different than, than in other countries. So, for example, um, you know, for taxi uh, hailing. Um, so Uber China and Didi Kwaidi, um, they were involved in a massive subsidy burning uh, war, which, you know, cost investors billions of dollars. Um, and I think, you know, in local services such as food delivery, you know, oftentimes these companies, they have to subsidize and offer really cheap discounts in order to win over customers and market share. So it is quite costly. Um, and even so, it's not clear if these business models are um, you know, it's not guaranteed that they would make, um, you know, a lot of profit in the future. So, for example, Toutiao, which is a news app, um, you know, a lot of news apps in the West have failed um, and, and or are struggling. So then um, it, it's difficult to see how Toutiao can, 
can sort of justify, you know, a lot of these lofty, uh, its lofty valuation. Which brings me on to my last question, which is, is there some extent to which this is a bubble? I think when the reader sees these headlines about people raising round after round in quick succession and the numbers going up very fast, you know, you talked about Totiao, mm. these guys Meituan, also mm. kind of raising at a much bigger valuation than before. It's hard from the outside, isn't it, to kind of get a clear picture of what's going on, but how bubbly do you think conditions are? Yeah, I mean, it, it is, um, you know, quite frenetic, the pace, um, and it's not clear if any of these companies, you know, are profitable at this point. So, for example, Didi, which already has a, a monopoly in its Chinese market, um, you know, it's not clear if, if they're breaking even, for example, um, and to be valued at, you know, $50 billion, it's, it's just, it looks a bit bubbly. Okay. Thanks very much, Robin. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Gina Chon, Quentin Webb and Robin Mack. Thanks and a welcome are also due to our new producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. And we doff our hats as always to our producing stalwart, Andrew D'Antonio. Thanks are due to you too for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes and please do share your opinions about our show. And don't forget to join us again next week for another edition.